When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In the popular imagination, evolution can't be seen directly because it unfolds over geologic periods of time. But we now know from decades of work that some species evolve really fast if circumstances are right. Bacteria and viruses can evolve significantly in days or weeks, fruit flies in months to years, and some fast-living birds in a year or two. Biologists have observed rapid evolution in three primary kinds of studies. The first are what are called laboratory natural selection experiments. In these, you hold captive populations in the lab under a set of defined conditions and then observe how they evolve. Here's a famous example. Rich Linsky at Michigan State University started a long-term experiment on E. coli in 1988. The design was ingeniously simple. He set up 12 replicate populations of bacteria in flasks in a bacteria-friendly growth medium and then transferred 1% of each flask to a fresh flask every day. E. coli grow and divide so rapidly that they go through six to seven bacterial generations in just one day. So we had bacteria living in novel conditions in the lab. Recall that their natural habitat is the GI tracts and on the fingers of small children at playgrounds. At high population sizes with multiple generations per day. Conditions ripe for evolution. And indeed, he and his team observed that they adapted fast, especially during initial generations, and they came to perform much better in the lab environment than did the founding population. A result that could be seen directly because they froze samples of each population every 75 days. They could later revive the samples and measure the relative performance directly and at the same time. Amazingly, this experiment is still running after 35 years, and the bacteria are still evolving. Here's an important thing about that E. coli experiment. Using laboratory natural selection, researchers don't select directly on traits by examining phenotypes and sorting winners from losers. Rather, they put populations into new experimental environments and let them go. But one could also select directly in effect becoming the hand. No, not the hand of Queen Daenerys, but the hand of natural selection. Which turns out to be the second main way that biologists study evolution experimentally. An example. In 2001, George Gilchrist and Ray Huey, then both at the University of Washington, measured the response to selection on so-called knockdown temperature of fruit flies. Over 32 generations, the team selected flies for their ability to withstand progressively higher temperatures. By fractionating them as they fell out of a progressively heated column. In some of the lines, they kept flies that fell out last, and thus were the most resistant to high temperatures. In other lines, the control lines, they kept flies that fell out right around 37 degrees. At the end of the study, the knockdown temperature in lines selected for higher temperatures evolved to be much higher than those in the control lines. Given that fruit flies have generation times of 10 to 12 days, they were able to run the whole experiment in just a little over a year. Okay, that's a lot of details on lab experiments. But of course, scientists also study evolution in the wild, which after all is what we really want to understand. You can probably come up with some examples. Of which one of the most famous is Peter and Rosemary Grant's work on Darwin's finches on the Galapagos Islands. We talked to Peter and Rosemary about their work way back in episode 28. Geez, Art, were we even out of diapers then? Over several decades of careful observations, they witnessed multiple evolutionary shifts in the size and shape of the beaks in finch populations. And they could deduce that those shifts resulted from very strong selection on beak traits. Beaks are the all-purpose tools by which birds interact with their environments. And when environments change in ways that alter the foods that are available... Think big droughts or big rains. Selection on winning and losing beak traits can be super intense sometimes leading to measurable evolutionary change. Thus, this third approach to studying evolution is what we might call observational. 
You study populations over long periods of time and observe how they change, with potentially other studies to identify what selective factors are at work, and perhaps what genetic and developmental processes changed in parallel. What such observational studies typically don't do is to manipulate populations or conditions directly in the wild, and then follow evolutionary trajectories in detail. Which brings us to today's guests. Katie Peichel, who is head of the Division of Evolutionary Ecology at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and Andrew Hendry, a professor in the Department of Biology at McGill University in Canada. Katie and Andrew are members of a large interdisciplinary team working on a grand experiment that was recently set up in lakes in Alaska. A few years ago, the team introduced another favorite species of evolutionary biologists, small fish called three-spined sticklebacks, into nine lakes in southeast Alaska. The lakes had recently been rendered fishless in order to get rid of another invasive species, and Alaska Fishing Game worked with the team to reintroduce new populations of sticklebacks, which are native to the area and lived in the lakes historically. This experimental introduction of fish gave the team an unparalleled opportunity to do a powerful, long-term evolutionary experiment in the wild. First, the introduced fish are from known source populations, and the starting traits and genomes of those fish are being analyzed in detail, so the team knows what the starting points are. Could be really important for understanding evolutionary trajectories. Second, they're in the middle of following each population for multiple years, measuring a whole suite of life history, morphological and physiological traits, and then trying to link that variation to evolve changes in the genome. This is obviously not the first experimental evolution ever done in the wild. For example, recall all the great work that's been done on guppies in Trinidad, some of it by our own Cam Gallenbor. But it's one of the grandest and most complete. In our chat today, we discuss the pros and cons of different approaches to studying evolution in the wild and the need for large-scale experimental studies. This episode is the first of several that we'll produce on the team's work, so stay tuned for more next year that will focus on some of their early results. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology. Katie and Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology. Uh, thrilled to have you here. We also want to just give you our congratulations on getting funding from multiple sources for this massive project that you're working on in Alaska now on experimental evolution of, of sticklebacks. And uh, we're going to dig into a lot of the details of, of sticklebacks, natural history, some of the traits that are evolving that you guys are interested in and things like the genetic underpinnings of some of those traits. But we want to start with maybe a broader overview of just thinking about different ways that people, different groups have studied evolution in the lab and in the wild. And, and what's unusual and hard about long-term experimental evolution in the wild? So maybe just for context, can you tell us like what, what are the main ways that people study evolution that's not what you're doing? I mean, I feel like I I've been writing a grant right now where I've been trying to sort of outline the contrast between what we're trying to do and and what is the typical thing. So I feel like I, I almost wrote this out in advance. Um, oh, great. <laughs> I'll keep it short, though, of course. I mean, basically, if you go back far enough, people would criticize evolutionary biology as a strictly historical science. Basically, that is, it's not something you can study through experiments. You have to go back and look at the existing patterns or dig up fossils and try and make inferences about what, what might have happened. It's not, it's not a field that's amenable to, to experiments. But maybe 20 years ago or so, roughly, give or take, um, and a little bit longer before that, people realized that if you have organisms with short enough lifespans, that in fact, you can actually do experimental evolution because you you do laboratory experiments and you take your microbes or your flies or whatever, and you you put them in different environments and you see how they evolve into the future. So it, it does become an experimental science. And I should point out that it's actually much longer than 20 years ago because people were doing experimental evolution under Drosophila starting maybe 100 years ago. But the stuff that brings it more into a natural setting, which is what I want to mention next, that came only about 20 years ago. Now, the problem with these lab experiments is that, in my view and view of many, they don't really reflect the, the real world. If you're interested in the evolution of microbes in the, in the hospital, well, then you want to do that kind of setting. Uh, but if you want to ask about how, from a more ecological conservation type perspective, things are evolving in the, in the quotes, real world, then you kind of got to do experiments in nature. And those are much harder. And, and so, the, so the concern here is that if you do these experiments in the lab, you're controlling everything, you're imposing some particular environmental change, then you see evolution in response to that. That's awesome, except that 
you know, you don't have the fully complex environment. And, and, the, and the worry is that in that fully complex world, the evolutionary trajectories are different in some way than they would be in these highly artificial lab settings. Is that it? Yeah. I mean, it's like um, I jokingly uh, call such experiments with my colleagues who do these experiments that they're, they're elegantly irrelevant, right? Because they're beautiful. <laughs> they're, you know, they're controlled. They have tons of replication. Everything is standardized. And so it's, it's really elegant, but, but they're kind of irrelevant because the world is never like that, right? You never have exactly equal experimental replicates. And so, you know, those are great for underlying, like doing an experiment to uh, detect some particular underlying cause of something. And it's kind of like proof of principle. Yeah, if I do this thing, then this standard set of organisms with the standard genotypes, they will respond in this, this way. But you don't know if that will actually happen out in a natural setting. And so that's what experiments in nature are hoping to do, is to see what signals emerge when you have your experiment layered on top of natural complexity. Just from a theoretical point of view, like what what would be different when you have the full complexity of the environment? What what can you envision as being a different evolutionary trajectory in the wild versus in the lab? I mean, one important component is just this multivariate nature of selection. In the lab, you know, you might be saying like you're under low glucose conditions, right? But in the in the field, you've got different predators, different food resources, different abiotic conditions, and organisms are having to adapt to all of these different things at the same at the same time. And that's what you're really, I think, missing um, in the lab. Temporal fluctuations, for example, you don't really see that in the lab as well. So I think that's one super important component. Yeah. So, so I'd say that's one angle, basically, is this idea that, that you never have an isolated selective force, right? Evolution doesn't work that way. The environment doesn't work that way. The additional complication I think is important is that you have a context to the action of selection and that context will vary from place to place. So let's say you have, it's warmer in one location and colder in another. It's got a different competitor in one location and another location. And yet you're trying to understand, for instance, what's the effect of predation. Well, the effect of predation might depend on whether it's warm or cold or whether there's a competitor present or absent. And so the average effect of the predator, when you remove all of that other variation, might not be relevant to any one specific instance in nature. And it might not be predictive of how different populations will respond to a new predator because it depends on whether that population is in warm or cold conditions or with a you know, another species that's a competitor or not, or a parasite or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, uh, maybe this is sort of another piece in the same set of things that you're talking about. But one, one thing I've worried about a lot in my own work, which is on, you know, insect ecophysiology is the roles of condition and disease in the wild versus in the lab. And, you know, often we use animals in the lab that are, you know, they may be unhealthy in other ways, like because of the diet they eat, but they're, they're typically not plagued by lots of diseases like many of the wild uh, individuals are. And it always has felt to me like, that's a really important missing component of sort of ecophys is to use animals that are compromised in various ways, because that's how animals in the wild really are, are existing much of the time. And, and you can imagine that really changing selection pressures and sort of what matters physiologically and morphologically in the wild. If, if things are sick versus not sick, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, I, th- I think that's definitely true. And I mean, that's one cool thing about our project is we'll have a, uh, Dan Bolnick studying all the sort of parasites that are infecting these these fish and looking at immune function and things like that. I think that's a missing component. I think in a lot of evolutionary biology is thinking about sort of the immune function and and how that might be impacting um, adaptation to different environments. I mean, people people try to assess these kind of interactions by going out in nature and measuring every possible thing they can on natural populations across all kinds of environmental gradients. And they try to draw correlations between these things. But when you then try to test whether that's like some sort of causal effect rather than just correlations that are occurring in nature that aren't cause and effect, then you need experiments. So bringing the two things together is is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's the same kind of dilemma that I, you know, I've been working on house sparrow colonization for the longest time. And one of the, the difficulties of doing that work is that every invasion is its own thing. It's sort of like every colonization of a lake is its own thing. So, you know, your point, Andrew, about the power of experimental evolution is establishing causality. 
But if there's so much context dependency and so many different forces of selection, how, how do you think about that? Where do you, how do you replicate nature? <laughs> like the many, many different ways that things can vary the temporal and spatial scales. You know, that's really tricky. We, did, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on the first foray into evolution in nature, which is, you know, the descriptive studies. You alluded to it, the Darwin's finches and many different things that have been tracked through time. That's neat because it sort of tells us you could describe across lots of different contexts and get some generality. But when you guys are designing your experimental natural evolution studies, how do you think about this ridiculous diversity of parasites and temperature and, and all these different factors? How, how do you go for generality or is that something that you look for? So how do we think about this complexity of nature? I mean, the, for me personally, I tried in essence not to try and fight it. Right? It's there. It's real. And so I don't think you can really replicate natural environments very well. I mean, people talk about semi-natural settings like mesocosms or things like this. I jokingly refer to them as semi-unnatural settings right? <laughs> because they're not real settings. So our goal really is to just use real nature experimentally. And I don't mean like going in and changing environments. I mean, when you have an opportunity to layer an experiment on top of natural variation among locations, then that's the perfect experiment for me because it tells you something new. It doesn't, it might not be the easiest way to figure out like what's the exact causal effect of one specific thing. You can assess the effects of these different environmental forces in the context of real variation in the real world with all of these things we've been talking about, parasites, predators, competitors, microbes, everything is still there. People, like people across the landscape too. If they're going to change evolution, then we want to know that. And we want to know it in the context of everything else that's going on. I mean, I think what we're trying to do here versus sort of the traditional evolutionary experiments where you're just looking at what you see now and trying to infer what happened, you know, in evolutionary past. Here, we at least know what went into those lakes in terms of phenotype and genotype. We know sort of what the eco baseline ecological conditions were. We're going to know how those change. And so it's not, what's interesting here is not whether things are this, exactly the same in each of these replicates, but can we explain what's happening based on our knowledge of what went in and how sort of ecological conditions and genetics and phenotypes changed over time. So we're sort of taking advantage of that variation and asking, does it have predictive power um, in sort of what, what, what we see? Mm -hmm. So if everything were the same, it would be sort of a boring experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about these organisms that, that we mentioned a few times, these sticklebacks. So they occupy both the ocean and adjacent freshwater systems. Over the longest time, we thought they were the same species, and it turns out they're not. It seems that freshwater sites have been repeatedly colonized by these oceanic forms, both in North America and Europe. And there's this really rapid evolution. Um, we were talking about guppies, but rapid evolution in, in this taxa too, in these newly arised freshwater populations. So, so tell us more about this. What were the sort of first studies about this rapid evolution? What were the traits that were being tracked? How, how did this whole study system start? Well, I mean, sticklebacks have been studied for a really long time as behavioral model systems, particularly in Europe. But then it was work by people like Tom Reimkin in on the Haida Gwaii in British Columbia and Don McPhail um, and Mike Bell, who started noticing all of this amazing morphological variation in sticklebacks um, and thinking about that from an evolutionary perspective and ecological perspective. And so a lot of the initial studies were really focused on bony sort of external skeletal traits. So three spine sticklebacks have three spines on their back. They have spines on their belly. They have these big bony lateral plates along their side and marine sticklebacks are really heavily armored. They've got big spines, big plates. But when the fish go into freshwater, they often lose that armor. And this is really seen consistently. And so, you know, people have tried to understand sort of what are the selective forces that are acting on, on these traits? You know, why do they evolve so rapidly? One insight into why they've evolved so rapidly comes from actually studying the genetics of these traits. 
And so back in the early 2000s, um, David Kingsley and I started using Stickleback as a model system to understand the genetic basis of this of morphological evolution in general, and we focused on these skeletal traits. And so it turns out that, for example, the repeated loss of bony plates in Stickleback um, is due to mutations in this gene called EDA, or ectodysplasin. But what's crucial about this is that the freshwater variant, the freshwater allele, is actually hanging out in at low frequencies in the marine population. So it doesn't have to arise de novo. In the, exactly. Yeah. And so it's sort of this, I think the general picture that it's emerging in stickleback is that there's a lot of these freshwater adaptive alleles that are sort of hiding in marine populations of standing variation. And then as soon as the fish move into freshwater, there's selection um, for these freshwater loci. And it's the, it's the biology of the stickleback that makes this happen. So the marine sticklebacks go into freshwater to breed, and there they're occasionally sort of hybridizing with, with freshwater resident sticklebacks, sort of picking up these um, freshwater alleles. And there's been, and these, a lot of these alleles are old, they're eight to 10 million years old. So even though the modern freshwater populations we see are only, they're post-glacial, they're 15,000 years old. But there's been these repeated rounds of glaciation and deglaciation occurring over the past 20 million years. And so sticklebacks have been doing this for a long time and sort of building this, this sort of set of freshwater adapted alleles. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I wondered about the persistence of those freshwater alleles in marine environments because it feels like if selection's so strong, well, I guess we haven't, we haven't established that. If, <laughs> if evolution is so rapid when they go into freshwater that sort of implies very strong selection, but maybe very strong selection against freshwater alleles in marine environments. So why do they persist in marine environments? I don't know. That's a convoluted sort of set of logic, but I, I think you just answered that. I think that these alleles, these freshwater alleles are mostly recessive. And so they can sort of hang out in the marine environment. But to be honest, we know nothing about selection in marine sticklebacks because they're really hard to study because they're tiny fish in a very large right. ocean. Needle in a haystack. And we only study them when they come into freshwater to breed when we can sort of catch them. So I, I just have to interject here, Katie, because um, when we were in Alaska this year after our experiments, uh, a bunch of us went out on like a whale watching trip and there we were seeing humpback whales and things like that. And we thought those humpback whales, I mean, they've got to be eating stickleback, Katie. <laughs> So, I mean, we, we, we're going to do a study on, you know, how whales select on stickleback. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding, but somebody someday is going to do an experiment on that or not experiment, <laughs> but a study. So, so Andrew, is the idea that this armor to keep the, the fish from going through the baleen plates in the humpback whales? Is that, is that the... <laughs> no, there was no idea whatsoever. I just thought, <laughs> oh, that, I didn't you know, go that far. Okay, any, okay. Anything that eats. Anything that eats stickleback, right, is is going to probably impose selection on them. So selection is basically non-random mortality or reproduction that is in relation to some trait or genotype, right? And so, you know, we, we know that like armor plates evolve from Katie's work, partly because of predation from predatory fishes or birds or things like that. But, you know, what, what would be the selection from a whale eating marine stickleback? Right. I mean, I, I, it's not going to care about the spines, is my guess, or the lateral plates, but it could really influence behavior of stickleback. Right. Because if they're foraging in the open water and maybe there's ways in which they can sense the pressure from a from a whale coming and get out of the way or more to the point, maybe it, that there's no selection from whales whatsoever. But I just thought it was kind of a cool thought that these whales are eating fish in the environment where there's millions of stickleback and who knows, maybe they're a strong selective factor on, on, on stickleback. We need to start getting some whale stomach content. I mean, to, to also to say like, we still don't really understand why there's selection in freshwater for low plated stickleback. This is, you know, something that we, despite lots of effort from lots of groups, including mine, we still don't really know why. And, and so what's the best working hypothesis there? So, you know, for example, it could be that there's just these bones are sort of resource intensive and that in freshwater, there's sort of low calcium, low phosphorus, and you just get selection against building plates. My lab tried to test that idea. We grew fish with that we controlled the genotype at EDA. So really that was the only thing that varied and looked at phosphorus. We grew the fish in low and high phosphorus and there was like 
Z- like literally zero. Oh no, zero. <laughs> Damn. Uh, differences in growth. So that's why you do the work, though, right? It's a good experiment. It ain't that. That's exactly. not the that's, that's what I told my devastated graduate student. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, the other idea would be predation, so that in freshwater there's a difference in predation regime, and so one idea is that these spines and plates are sort of surfaces that macroinvertebrates can sort of grab onto and eat juvenile sticklebacks. The experimental evidence isn't, isn't great for that. I really, I personally think it has to be something abiotic. The other thing about that, well, the, the Eta locus actually encompasses, that's under selection, encompasses two other genes, which are sort of immune-related genes. So there could be some immune immune function. We still, we still really don't know. So this is some kind of pleiotropy then? It could be pleiotropic that there's there's pleiotropy. And again, getting back to our earlier point, there doesn't just have to be a single form of selection acting on this locus, that it could be multivariate and there's pleiotropic effects of this locus. Well, I'm going to suggest that your next year's study, you go out and grab some of those humpbacks and introduce them into the lakes. And um, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, there's a fundable idea, Marty. So there's a there's a technique. Uh, I was thinking that uh, there's a technique where you can get gut contents from animals uh, without killing them, and it's called gastric lavage, where you you stick a you know like a um, a syringe down their throat and squirt water in, so they barf. So we could also do that with whales, I suppose. That might be. It's <laughs> a big syringe. I'm gonna let Andrew do that one. Yeah, I oh I, well, I just can't imagine the the uh, animal use protocols I would need to be able to do that kind of work. Um, <laughs> I also just wanted to mention a couple of really interesting historical anecdotes, and one of them is that Darwin talked about stickleback, and it was in the, his book on sexual selection. And I was trying to come up with a quote. And I realized that right sitting right in front of me, I have a, a cup, like a ceramic cup that my wife had painted, which has the quote on it. And I was searching for it online and it's standing right in front of me. And the quote is, the male salmon is as pugnacious as the little stickleback. Darwin, 1871. <laughs> so Darwin was Darwin was interested in behavior of stickleback, and he was sort of talking about male aggression. And then interestingly, the other thing I wanted to mention is Nico Tinbergen, uh, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine along with Conrad Lorenz and who was the- Carl Runfrisch. Yes. So Nico Tinbergen uh, won the Nobel Prize partly for his studies of stickleback, where famously he would have a stickleback in his aquarium by his window at his house in the UK and a red a red milk truck or mail truck. I can't remember which would go by and it would like trigger this male stickleback. It would start displaying like crazy because he saw that he thought it was a red throated male stickleback that he had to... Uh, interact with. So I just think it's kind of fun to think back, like from the very origins of evolutionary biology, you had stickleback there providing some sort of contribution. So, you know, one of the things that surprised me is this focus on the the bony plates. I mean, if the colonization of fresh water, you know, how, how does how does ion balance work? How does water balance work? Is this something that's been intensively investigated and found not to be all that surprising or all that illuminating or, or what's going on on that front? I think it's just the the plates were sort of an easy focus, right? Because you can take the fish, you can stain them, and you can count them. But physiological traits are just, as I mean, art could tell us, are harder to to measure. And um, I mean, there's, of course, been a lot of work on beautiful work on behavior as well in in stickleback. Um, But I think now, at least in my lab, and I think many people are, and Dan, for example, is thinking about immunological traits, how parasites are differing between marine and freshwater, um, how physiological traits, because these are probably really also really important targets of selection. And for example, if you sequence the genomes of a bunch of marine and freshwater sticklebacks, you get, you know, a hundred regions of the genome that are highly differentiated. Including physiological regions, yeah. Exactly. So there's clearly lots of other things that are going on and we just don't, don't understand them very well. So I just, it is true that some of the sort of the classic genomic work on linking genomics to ecology and stickleback was on these, these plate morphs. But as Katie was also just pointing out, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of things that differ both between marine and freshwater and among freshwater populations. And really people have focused on those, those lateral plates, partly because they're really obvious. You can see them, you can count them. 
and because they're they fell really neatly into what you would call a Mendelian trait, basically, where there's you know three two alleles and three genotypes, and those explain the massive amount of variation. So you could actually genotype, you know what genotype you're looking at just by looking at the fish, because it corresponds so nicely to the EDA genotypes, give or take. And so there is a lot of focus work on that because it's kind of just really convenient to study and it works just really well. But there's tons and tons of work on these much more complicated traits that that is really the more typical situation for most of the traits that stickleback are are showing. I mean, and people have also, for example, focused a lot on the trophic character, like the bony structures of the head that are important for eating different food resources. So, I mean, these are crucially uh, important. So like, for example, the gill rakers that fish use to sort of siphon their food, you know, fish that are eating large macroinvertebrates have fewer and larger gill rakers and fish that are eating zooplankton have more and longer gill rakers. And so, you know, from both the phenotypic perspective and also the genetic perspective, those have also been a subject of study. Those are unlike EDA, those are traits that have a much more complex genetic architecture. So more genes, genes of smaller effect, et cetera. And that's probably more typical of, um, of traits that are under selection in, in stickleback. So, I mean, you know, there's several other systems in which people are studying long-term experimental evolution in the wild. You know, one that comes to mind that's, you know, at least semi-related to yours is all of the work on the guppies in Trinidad, also a fish system, also interesting movements of fish to create new populations that have experienced new sets of conditions and undergone very rapid evolution. Just overall, what have we learned from the guppy system and you know, why, why do we need an additional set of experiments on sticklebacks on, you know, somewhat similar things? It's good that, that you didn't review our grant. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm very enthusiastic. Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So, well, maybe, Andrew, you could talk about the, you know, the guppy system way better than I do. Yeah, I can mention, because I've worked on the guppy system as well, including experimental introductions. Um, and so I have some experience with that. I mean, the way all of these experiments started was just to prove that evolution occurred rapidly. That, that was really the context for the first 20 of these types of experiments, right? Because nobody believed, going back 25 years ago, the vast majority of people thought that evolution was so slow that you could never access it in nature with vertebrates, for example, in any sort of experimental way. And so people were relying on these massive environmental contrasts that normally occur in much older populations and then just moving them between those contexts and then measuring how fast things were changing and then confirming that it was indeed evolution. So the vast majority of, of what was shown by that earlier work was simply that, yes, evolution does occur really rapidly. And to some extent, it's predictable. For example, if you take guppies and they're in a high predation environment and then you put them in a place without without the major predators, then they will evolve a suite of traits that tend to be expected in a environment that has fewer predators. Now, since then, people have been more focused on some experiments that try to get additional insight into the questions such as how predictable is that evolution? How how repeatable is that evolution? Then you need to do replicate in experimental introductions with known sources. Now, I'm not sure I know like what the answer is. I think I'm going to defer to Katie on saying what these experiments actually tell us about how parallel or how repeatable evolution is or is not. I mean, I guess in terms of repeatability, one thing from the guppy experiments is they started with the same starting population, right? And so then you know, you have the same source of genetic variation going into these replicates. And so you might say that there's a bias there because you've sort of started with the same with the same starting population and also limited genetic diversity because they started with a single a single population. So you could say, well, maybe there was some weird sort of genetic variants that were present here that sort of forced things down a, a particular pathway. 
we got around that a little bit in our experiment by starting with we pooled four different populations to make a, a so-called benthic pool, so adapted to feeding on macroinvertebrates. And then we pooled another set of four populations that were limnetic-like, adapted to feeding on zooplankton. And so we sort of mac tried to maximize the amount of genetic diversity in our starting populations. So that's one difference with the guppy experiments is sort of more populations went in. Also, we're sequencing the, the genomes of all of those fish. So in the guppy experiment, they don't have access to genome sequences from those, from those fish. So they actually can't tell you what that, what, what are the genetic variants that went into, um, went into these replicates. So you'll have a lot more detailed information on the starting genetics. Absolutely. That's a good, super cool component of what, of what we're doing. Totally. Yeah. It's funny that Katie and I didn't like consult in how we would answer these questions in advance, but as we were talking, I was writing down a couple of things that were, that I specifically wanted to highlight in how our experiment contrasted with the ones previously. And Katie just said them both exactly. Great. Uh, you guys are meant to work together. <laughs> Andrew and I rarely agree, so. <laughs> so <laughs> no, noted. Remarkable yeah. moment. <laughs> yeah, but there's no genetic context, right? Because you don't have different genetic starting sources. There's no repli replication, in quotations, of the genetic population you're starting with. And so, as Katie was pointing out, that's what our experiments are doing. We, we're using multiple source populations, and they're replicated in multiple places, and we've created these mixtures of source populations, which is really not done. It's experimental evolution anywhere. And then, yeah, the other exact thing is that we, we will have vastly better information on the exact set of genotypes that went into these populations. Like, can you just, I, I just think you should talk about the scope of the genotyping that's being done here because it just blows my mind. Well, yeah. So, I mean, literally we had about 10,000 fish that went into these lakes and we are seek, doing whole genome sequencing of every single individual fish that's, that founded these populations. So it's a lot of sequencing. So, you know, you write the grant, you're like, oh, this would be super cool. And then you're, you're faced with that. Like, oh my God, how are we going to sequence 10,000 <laughs> genomes? It's the, the oh shit moment when you get the grant, right? Totally. <laughs> and just, just, uh, just extracting the DNA. And we had these, I mean, these were live fish, right? So we had to take tiny, tiny fin clips so that the fish would survive the transplants. And so it's extracting DNA from these tiny fin clips and then doing the whole genome sequencing on those. So I'll just give a shout out to the folks at McGill who are actually doing the, the sequencing for us. How many are done right now? Um, I'm not sure, actually. Probably, I know we have DNAs from about half of the fish. Huh. Still got to like piece them all together, that kind of thing. Exactly. So then it's sort of a big bioinformatics um, project. Sounds grand. Sounds grand. <laughs> um, the grant that you guys have, is that is that a single NSF grant or, or what's the funding? Because we were confused, Katie, because you're in Switzerland now and not sure how that worked. I mean, maybe a little bit of the history first is that basically we didn't have a grant for this project, just the... the um, opportunity came up. And so we all sort of threw in slush funds to make it happen and sent people. And then the idea was to get money later. <laughs> <laughs> Good. One of the crucial things was to get whole genome sequencing of every individual that went into these lakes, which is, you know, 10,000 individuals. So that's a lot of money. And so because I'm in Switzerland, the opportunity to get large sums of money is a little bit larger than it is in Canada or, or the U.S., and so I applied for this um, grant, it's like the European Research Council grants are these big grants in Europe, but Switzerland got kicked out of that system. And so they replaced it with their own system. And so I applied for that to get the money to do the whole genome sequencing. So it's been, I would say, just opportunistic that all of us are applying for money where we think we can get it to fund the project. Gotcha. I think that the way people think that most science proceeds is that you have an idea and then you, you know, search out money to, to get it. And then you go ahead and you compile the people to do the project and you go out and you actually do the project. But this one proceeded quite differently, which meant that it was kind of uh, had some opportunities and some constraints that weren't there otherwise. And basically what happened is we heard about the opportunity to do this research at a, at a meeting, a scientific meeting, and literally had to had to start the project within a year. And there's no way you can get funding on that kind of time frame. 
or arrange students or anything like that. So instead, a bunch of the, the PIs got together and said, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. Let's, let's just do it ourselves. And so we all sort of cobbled together money off of our research grants, which is our existing research grants, which is one of the, the cool things about sort of these semi-untargeted research funds is that you can actually take advantage of opportunities like this. And then it was just kind of amazing because we, the first year, it was essentially all PIs in the field. There were no students actually on the project. There were some students that were helping out, but they weren't actually on the project. And that never happens really, where you just get all the PIs doing the field work anymore. But I just think it was it's like kind of a cool way in which it started, which doesn't really happen anymore, where you just hear about something and then everybody just goes for it before you have everything all, you know, all funded and students in place and all of that. It was, it was, a, it was kind of a unique experience. It sounds, it sounds like a semi-ideal way to, to do science. I mean, it's a great way for you guys to sort of get together and crystallize everything, right? I think the best science grows organically. And that maybe goes back to the question that Marty just asked us. Like we've all been, well, Andrew and Dan and Rowan and I have all been working together for ages and we bring, we have complementary expertise and we know we work really super well together. We have fun doing science together. And so I think when Andrew sort of learned about this project, he immediately started grabbing his friends to say, hey, this is super cool. Do you want to be involved with this? And we were all like, yeah, absolutely. This is amazing. So um, so it wasn't like these top-down sort of things where someone says, oh, we need to fund research on this. And then you bring together people who've never worked together. This is really a grounds-up sort of project that grew from, from people who knew they enjoyed working together. And we brought in other people since then um, to sort of complement the expertise that we that we don't have. Did you all come together because of a mutual love of sticklebacks or or who was the the stickleback starter? Who was the matchstick in that part of the relationship? I would I mean Andrew you could disagree with me but I would say that our original collaboration was through Dan Bolnick. This was back in 2007 somewhere around there that Dan had this idea to work on parallel evolution so what drives sort of repeated evolution and so he wanted to focus on these uh, stickleback, lake stream stickleback in British Columbia. And Andrew had worked on those systems. Dan had worked on those systems. And then they wanted to do some genetic. Dan wanted to bring in like the genetics and genomics was my, which was my expertise. And so we got together at the evolution meetings in Minnesota and started hashing out ideas. And then um, Andrew's family had, Andrew went on sabbatical in Napa at his family's vineyard. Sounds rough. And we made a, (laughs) He twisted our arms and we all went to the vineyard and uh, we basically put together the first the first draft of the grant on that trip in between drinking wine. Yeah. So Dan and I had both been working on Stickleback on Vancouver Island uh, in British Columbia. And I published a paper in 2004 and Dan saw an article about our research in like the local newspaper, the Campbell River newspaper. And he's like, wait, what? There's people doing stickleback work in, in Campbell River, British Columbia, and, that, and it's not me. I'm doing work here. And so he contacted me and said, "Hey, man, we're we're studying the same lakes. We're working on stickleback. You know, we should we should talk." And then he likes to joke that I showed up at his uh, at his field site or his field camp next summer with my whole lab and and insisted that we take over the place and stay there the whole time period. Uh, I don't remember it quite like that, but. So I want to turn at this point to a few more details about your Alaska experiment. I know we've already touched on aspects of it, but I feel like we haven't like actually said in a nutshell, like what, what, what the overall experiment is and, you know, how long it'll run, that kind of thing. Let's, let's just sort of lay it out. So you've got this long-term experimental evolution experiment going on sticklebacks in Alaska. Maybe just give us the overview of like, how many lakes are these fish going into? How did they get into them? And how long are you going to follow these populations and just an overview of what you're going to measure? So I'll start with sort of the, the overall design and then I'll let Katie talk more about like the, um, the genomic work and the genetic work that's following from the design. But I did want to say one really interesting thing is that we've all been talking about EDA and these lateral plates 
And one thing this experiment does not involve is variation in that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> because they're all freshwater populations. So they're all low plated. So I think one thing that's really important to think about is like why we have the opportunity to do an experiment in nature. We, we wouldn't advocate people just go out and start throwing things everywhere they want to do so they can study their evolution. That's illegal in many, many changes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have a very particular set of circumstances that enable this kind of experiment. And it starts with the fact that a lot of lakes in the, throughout the world and freshwater bodies throughout the world pretty much every environment everywhere gets invaded by things that don't belong there, meaning invasive species from some other place in the world or geographically. And these invasive species often have really massive negative impacts on the environment. Now, the specific one that is of concern here is a fish called the northern pike, which is a voracious predator that is really good at killing other fish, small fish. And northern pike is native to North America, but it's only native to some regions in North America. And one region it's not native to is the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska. But somebody, presumably fishermen, wanted to put these pike in lakes so they could fish for them. And these pike then start to spread to other locations. And they're such good predators that they essentially wipe out all the native fishes, any salmon or trout that are in these lakes, and all the stickleback. So this is a big environmental degradation that the Alaska Department of Fish and Game needs to deal with. And the only way you can really be sure you get rid of this invasive species, remembering again that there's no other native fish in these lakes now, is to actually poison the lakes with a chemical called rotenone. It's a classic chemical used to kill all vertebrate life within a water body. And then you can start from scratch. And then the idea is you have to restore the lakes. You have to put the native things back in. And we sort of heard that this was going to occur and that they were going to throw stickleback back in these lakes. And it just seemed like a really wonderful opportunity for us to be able to do an experiment that would tell us basic conceptual and biological questions and evolutionary questions, but also have applied relevance in the context of what's the best way to restore a lake. So in a nutshell, you have depends on how you count, but let's just say nine empty lakes. They're very in size, but none of them are massive. So um, what's, uh, what would be a good size? Well, it takes, it took us what, 10 minutes to canoe across it. Yeah. So you can have a, you can have a lake that takes one minute to, some of them take one minute to canoe across and other ones can take 10 minutes to canoe across. How about that? <laughs> so we've got nine of these lakes and we decided to try and understand not just how evolution would proceed within them, but how evolution will influence the lakes themselves. And so we leverage this variation uh, in trophic morphology. That is some stickleback like to feed on the bottom and they're called benthic and other stickleback populations and species like to feed in the open water column, and they're called limnetic. And so we decided to put benthic stickleback into some of the lakes and limnetic stickleback into other lakes so we could see how that would influence the rest of the lake ecosystem. And then the other thing we decided to do was to mix benthic populations. So we, take, we found four really benthic populations, mixed them together, and then introduced that mixture into four lakes. And then we found four limnetic, really like sort of archetypal limnetic populations, mixed them together and introduced that mixture into four lakes. And then into the ninth lake, we put all of the source populations. So we have this mixture of benthic and limnetic populations from eight different sources. And then the only other additional twist is that in one of these lakes, um, one of the lakes we put benthic sickle back into, for some reason it didn't succeed, they all died. The only one, we, we don't know why, we have hypotheses, but we don't know why. So we redid that lake. And in that one, we also put a mixture of all the source populations we could get a hold of, which was seven of the eight. So you have four lakes that have limnetic mixtures, three lakes that have benthic mixtures, and two lakes that have mixtures of a bunch of these benthic and, and limnetic source populations. So that's the experimental design. Andrew, how did you decide how many fish to put in each lake? I mean, it was a balance between how many would be reasonable to remove from the source lakes, how many we could reasonably handle, because as Katie pointed out, every single one had a fin clip taken. And we had to do this in a short period of time. And then the only other thing was we, we had long debates on email between Katie, Rowan Barrett, Dan Bolnick, myself and others about whether we should just put the exact same number of stickleback into each of the lakes that they're going to receive them or whether we should somehow scale them, scale the amount put in by the number of, uh, by the size of the lake. 
And in the end, uh, we were tipped in the final direction by Alaska Department of Fish and Game, who was concerned with putting too few stickleback in the big lakes for them to take off quickly. And at the same time, we didn't want to put like 10 billion stickleback into little tiny ones. So we ended up scaling them, not proportionally, but they're scaled by lake size. Cool. And, and what year did all these fish go in? 2019. Perfect timing. Oh, great timing. Nothing else going on around that period. Yeah. <laughs> but we were super lucky in 2020 and 2021 because, of course, we want to collect fish every year. And um, one of our colleagues on the project, Jesse Weber, was a professor at University of Alaska Anchorage. And so he and Kat Milligan-McLennan were able to um, collect samples for us in 2020 and 2021. Because those are really crucial years, like these early years, some we think interesting things are going to happen in these early stages when selection is probably really strong. So um, we were super fortunate. And then we were able to sort of mount the big teams in 2022 and 2023. How many years are you intending to follow these populations? Um, you know, do you are already see evolution and are you most interested in phenotypic evolution, genomic evolution, like the linkage between the two? All of it. <laughs> yeah, okay, <laughs> I great. mean, at least, you know, I think from everyone's perspective, we're interested in how the sticklebacks are evolving. We're interested in what's the underlying genetic basis of that. Um, we're interested in how the parasites are evolving in these in these sticklebacks, how the how that's feeding back onto the lake, lake ecosystems. And so... Yeah. So I'm understanding now why your team is so large. Exactly. It's this is really a big a big collaborative interdisciplinary project. The the time scale, you know, like for example, my grant goes until 20 end of 2027, so that'll be eight generations. One year is basically a generation and stick back in these Alaskan lakes it might be two years, but essentially we'll have several generations and we think a lot of interesting things will happen then. But I mean, what we would love is that people continue to study these lakes for forever, as long as there's sticklebacks there. This is a long-term experiment. And if people are interested in, they have their own ideas about what might be cool about these lakes, you know, that we're sort of bringing people onto the, onto the team to, to study them. Okay. So here's one other, this is one thing that Marty and I kept thinking about and discussing when we were prepping for this, this chat. And that's thinking about the roles of plasticity in shifts and traits that you see. And we just wondered overall, how important is plasticity in, sh in shifting some of the traits when things move from marine to freshwater? And then the, the sort of more abstract version of that question is, you know, do the directions of plasticity, if they exist, do those align with the directions of evolution? Meaning, you know, is there a linkage between sort of pre-evolved pathways for plasticity and what's possible in evolution? I mean, we know that many of these traits and sticklebacks have a very large genetic component. So they're pretty heritable. If you keep, if you grow them in the lab, you know, benthic sticklebacks still look benthic after several generations in the lab. Limnetic still look limnetic. Same with marine freshwater differences. So we know there is this strong genetic component, but there's also plasticity. Um, Jesse Weber, who's involved in the project, is actually doing common garden experiments on all of the populations that went into the introductions to actually get at this question of sort of how much plasticity is there? Is it sort of adaptive? Does it go in the direction that would be adaptive or not? In this particular experiment, uh, we can actually disentangle those effects because we can go in any generation and we can genotype an individual fish and find out what its genotype is. So we are, these are massive replicated common garden experiments, right? Because we can go back and get a pure fish from source like one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years into the future, right? So we can, we can directly compare genetic and plastic effects in every single generation by, by individually genotyping fish that we capture from these lakes and then measuring their phenotypes. Yeah, super cool. So uh, let's, um, if it's okay with you guys, we'll scale out even more and talk about the implications of your stickleback research in a in a in the broadest possible sense. So, Katie, in your in your grant proposal, you um really early on juxtaposed two very cool ideas, and I want to hear what one or both of you think about this. You cast the work that you guys are doing, sort of these comparisons uh, between populations experiencing evolving through time, asking about um I guess you call that parallel evolution. And in that same section, you were talking about convergent evolution 
which you know you cast as let's say wings right of bats versus birds versus insects functionally the same kinds of things but very different trajectories and genetic bases and all of that how do you think the stackelback work and, and parallel evolution generally relates to convergent evolution so i think what we have in this system is this ability to sort of, again, to sort of test the factors that might contribute to whether we see repeated evolution or not. So again, I think it's, it doesn't matter to me whether evolution is repeatable in these systems. What I want to know is, can we say, oh, in this lake, we had this genotype sort of take off, and that's why it sort of went in this direction. Or in this lake, there was this weird sort of abiotic variable that sort of went things in, in this way. And so that will tell us to what extent on this micro scale evolution is repeatable or predictable. And if the answer to that is no, we can't predict anything, then it's sort of hopeless to try and think about macro (laughs) scale, right? Sure. But if we can say, oh, in this experiment, what we find determines the trajectories of of evolution that we see is really sort of the selective regime and any sort of genetic changes can, can make these changes to genetics is an important, for example, that might tell us something about how to look at sort of these broader scale patterns and say, okay, when we see patterns of convergence at the phenotypic level, it probably is driven by the environment for, for example, and maybe developmental or genetic constraints aren't so important. So I think there may be some ability to, to scale up, but this sort of gap between sort of microevolutionary processes and macroevolutionary processes is is a tough one actually in in evolutionary biology i think lots of people sort of struggle with how do we how do we sort of bridge these two levels of of evolution and and if you had to identify like a length of time that characterizes that distinction between micro and macro what 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 is it <laughs> that's a good that's a good question Andrew do you have I mean well I mean different people say it in, di- in different ways I mean I think the easiest way at, at what appears to be the easiest way to sort of talk about these transitions from micro to macro is whether you have the origin of a new species right so if it's within a species you call it micro and if it's between species but stickleback I think highlight the how that could be considered a bit of a false dichotomy anyway, because what is it, what is a species in stickleback? I mean, you, you could, you, you could take, you know, the three spine stickleback complex and break it up into a whole bunch of different species, depending on, on what particular criteria you might use. And yet if we threw them all together, they'd all breed together or would they, because we are about to test that, right? Like we're going to know, do all these populations mate with each other and are they happy to do so? So again, it's almost like a, a big experiment on testing whether these things are maybe. also different species. Maybe that's, maybe that's the mi- micros. They can meet, mate with each other. Macros, they can't. How's that? <laughs> okay. I like sure. that. It's I like nice that. And clean. <laughs> but, but I mean, okay. So, so if we just put aside this question of whether there's multiple or one species, like, you know, you, you're going to have a short-term experiment that looks at, you know, presumably in the end, five or 10 years of data about evolution, you're going to decide whether it's predictable what happens in the different lakes. But does that inform, say, you know, how these things will look in a thousand years or 10,000 years? I mean, I I guess I would still call that microevolution, but it's a much longer timescale than, you know, what any experiment can look at. Well, I think then that that's would be really cool then is to take what we learn from this experiment, because in our and, and then compare it to our wild stickleback populations, which have been evolving for, you know, 10,000 years or actually longer, if you think about this sort of evolutionary history of them. And, and to what extent can we take what we learn in these, these experimental conditions, sort of apply it, and now can we explain what we see in our natural populations, which have been evolving? I'm going to bet that 100 years from now, someone's doing a podcast on this experiment, <laughs> right? Because... As Katie said earlier, it's permanent. We're not taking them out. These these lakes aren't connected to external water bodies. And so to the extent that people are still interested in evolution 100 or 1,000 years from now, they'll probably still be studying these populations. Okay, so I have another question, and this is a bit of a selfish one. I'm trying to, to marry three-spine sickleback world with house sparrow world. The work that we've been doing recently, we focus a lot on the individuals that are colonizing new places. 
And I know when you you know you do this mega experiment, so many different people evolved, and so many different things that you have to do. There's an unbelievable elegance to you know the the mixture of benthic populations and the mimetic populations and the introduction to the different lakes. But when you did that, did you pay attention? Were you able to make measurements of any of the traits of the colonizers? Do you expect the pioneers in a natural system to have been different than presumably the you know the random grouping that, that you introduced to the different lakes is there is there something different there in nature where you know whoever's going to colonize wouldn't necessarily be the the random subsample that you're putting into the lakes how have you thought about that well i was going to say i mean at the population level at least you know because we put in this mixture we've already designed some some snip arrays to figure out the ancestry of the fish that are sort of swimming around now in these lakes and not all of the four founding populations have contributed equally. So why that is, of course, we don't know, but it's not a 25% across the, the populations. Yeah, so I think uh, to transition that from what Katie was saying, in principle, since we have, we will have the, the whole genome at high coverage of every single individual that went in, and we took photographs of everyone so we can at least know their external morphology, in principle, we can link individual variation to success in subsequent generations. Now, in addition, um, I mentioned that one of the lake introductions didn't work, and so it was redone. And for that one, um, I have a student, uh, her name is Alexis Heckley. She was looking at how individual variation in behavior will influence how they move through the lake and then potentially survive moving forward. So. This is something that is that is of interest to us. It's just that when you have, like, if you want detailed behavioral observations, like you might do with birds that you're walking at, watching in nets boxes, that we can't do because these populations are going to get so big that we, we really can't track individuals very well, unless from a genetic perspective. But even then, you're going to have 10,000 fish in these lakes, right? So the, the, don't worry, there's still a place for lots of this individual bird work that we just won't be able to answer. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have any expectations on what the pioneer stickleback looks like? Who 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 are the what are the individuals that go into these places? Yeah, I mean it's funny because we did actually have um, we did have some debates among ourselves about which population at the population level, right? Which populations would be most successful? None of us were right, I think so. For example, one of the hypotheses was that the lake that had the biggest females, the highest fecundity, right? So that lake might, just from a purely demographic perspective, basically produce the most kids and so take over. It did not. Um, one of the other predictions was that the populations that sort of appear to be most best ecologically matched to the recipient lake would do the best. And we still have more work to do on that. But it's not like the benthic populations universally did best in benthic-oriented lakes and limnetic populations in limnetic-type lakes. It, it doesn't seem to map out quite like that. Um, but, but actually, it makes partial sense because in the first few generations, there's probably not high competition, right? Because they haven't fully populated the lake. And so everybody can just eat what they want to eat, and it's not going to be depleted. And therefore, it's like this old argument about what people call hard versus soft selection, right? You know, and initially there's just no density dependence. So everybody does okay. And you might not see lots of evolution until, you know, I don't know, 10 generations from here. Although now the, the densities in those lakes are super high. Yes, I mean, yes. it's incredible how many sticklebacks there are. So, so I would say now there's probably competition is probably mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. strong. Well, Katie and Andrew, I mean, this has really been fun, and um, I guess we should let the audience know that this might be, might not be, probably won't be the last time that we talk about stickleback evolution in your system. The hope is that next year we'll do some version of this live together in Alaska, and if you can uh, foreshadow a little bit what we, what you think we're going to be talking about, um, Dan Bolnick, we mentioned him 45 times at this point. He wasn't able to join us, but I know that he and others are interested in the evolution of gene regulatory networks. And that's something that I'm, I'm really excited to hear about. But either maybe a little bit that you could say about that or just in general, what do you expect us to be talking about in a year or so? Andrew, you want us to make predictions, make a prediction. <laughs> 
the predictive the predictability of podcasts <laughs> i mean we every year there's a series of things that we do um and that includes a lot of the the stuff that dan bolnick leads on parasites and gene expression and um, immunology and things like that and so i imagine that we'll do a lot of discussion looking at individual parasites and how fish are responding to them and and that that's a like this massive interesting can of worms in, in a good way um, there's also like a whole ton of work trying to understand how the behavior of the sickleback is evolving. And that's that's a really cool thing to look at because you can, you know, get in your wetsuit and go take a look at, you know, the who's mating with who and how that's affecting anything. Um, in addition to that, we've got a whole bunch of other sort of experiments that we're mulling through right now as to what is the best next step in this project. And so um, I'm not going to predict exactly what will happen apart from those first two things I mentioned. <laughs> but I, I do, I do think in a year we'll have some early results in terms of how more, how the phenotypes are evolving at the morphological level. We might have a little bit more genetic data, sort of these patterns of sort of assorted mating and why, maybe why certain populations are doing better. So I think, I think we're going to start to have our first sort of sets of results that we could really talk about next year. Great. Well, it's probably a good time to start wrapping up. Um, before we go, though, uh, we always like to ask our guests one last question, which is whether there's anything else you would like to say that we haven't asked you about. I mean, for, for me, I think the important thing is, is that, you know, podcasts like this give the impression that there was like two people or three people who, you know, like figured everything out and did all the work. And, and I think it, what's really important for me is to recognize that this is a team effort by a whole bunch of people all with complementary levels of expertise who were assembled, as Katie pointed out, because we all like each other and work well together and complement each other in what we're doing. And I think it, it, it is critical to recognize that those other people are equal partners in this. It's not the people you're talking to and that the audience is listening to. It's this massive set of people of which we are just you know, one divided by N of the contributions to this project. Yeah, no, great point. It's a impressively large and diverse team. And, um, you know, we expect to talk to different subsets of you in the future. The the other thing just to add to that is I think we we all feel like this is sort of the opportunity of a lifetime. You know, I never imagined we would be doing, I'd be involved in such a cool project and it's really just a lot of fun. And also to emphasize that we really we want this to remain just a collegial and fun group. And it's really important to us that our students and postdocs get credit and that we, at the end of it, that we're all still friends um, <laughs> and, and like each other, that it's cool science and we, we want to just have fun doing it. So Yeah, there's no experiment like this anywhere. Um, it, it's just completely unique. And so the opportunities are just, just really like through the roof and having a bunch of like, colleagues who've worked together in the past and are bringing in new people who we know will work well. Um, and it's just, it, it is the funnest. It, it, you know, it's, I feel like I could have retired Katie after I did the introductions in 2019. I mean, I literally could have retired and my career would right. still be roaring for a hundred years. I'm guessing, even if, you know, even if I'm not like on every paper, I just feel like the experiment I've done the experiment of a life. Sorry. I don't mean I, I mean, we've done the experiment of a lifetime now and, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm, I don't intend to retire on that, but, you know, I, I feel like I could have. And, and it's like the one thing that that I that I was a big part of helping out that will never be. There's nothing like this anywhere and it, probably not for quite some time, although I hope other people get inspired to do similar sorts of work. And maybe I almost I almost hope will be obsolete in a few years because someone else will have done something bigger. Almost. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, super looking forward to talking it over next year. Great. great. Thanks. Yeah, it was great. It was, uh, that was, that's uh, the funnest podcast I've been on. Thank yeah. you both for the chance to yeah. chat about it. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review where you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write to us at info at bigbiology.org. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to Dana De La Cruz for her amazing social media work, and Keating Shimeri, who produces our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello. 